happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 229 for August 25th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, Good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am well. I am looking forward to some fall weather. The heat is uh, keeping up here, but, you know, it is August. So I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School, where I am teaching 5th and 6th grade media literacy and serving as a 6th grade advisor. And we are in our second week of classes back and it's it's exciting so far so far so good so we are masking up and de-densifying our gatherings at the cafeteria and our chapel by path and uh so so far so good so um how is uh how's life in in missoula are the have the rains dissipated all signs of fires or uh, There's still actually, some smoke, some smoke uh, in the area. Today, the smoke was, in fact, I now that you mentioned that, I might go check out what the um, the air quality is. It was a little hazier today, and they did downgrade um, the fire condition from a 5 to a 4. 5, I think, is the top of that category, and 4 is just really darn bad. So um, and it looks like in Missoula, we, things have been cleared today. So that, that's good news. Uh, so the haze wasn't... Uh, um, uh, well, no, now I'm looking at this. It's definitely higher than it was uh, earlier today, but uh, still in the green category. But yeah, there's still very much a, a fire situation in the broader uh, U.S. West, but uh, a little better here. So the weather's been nice and temperate in the last uh, uh, the last two weeks. And so the highs have been in the 70s and early 80s and the night times have gotten down to the 40s. So I oh, did note that yeah, uh, in... Uh, closer to the Continental Divide uh, in in kind of north central Montana, uh, I saw some Facebook friends that live in more rural areas say that it froze already uh, there. So, wow. um, and there were some uh, a lot of memes going around about about uh, uh, getting your garden uh, taken care of uh, for those that, that that have food gardens. But you know, we're we're very thankful that 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 fall is coming, and that means that that fire fire danger should die down and. Although I work on a virtual, or I'm sorry, I work for a virtual program, I'm located on a physical campus. Uh, the University of Montana is a um, large tier one research university, uh, 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 one of two flagship universities in the state of Montana. And so uh, it's freshman orientation week at the University of Montana. So tons of people running around in maroon t-shirts and uh, uh, students and their parents coming on campus for the first time. And I have to say, I took a little walk uh, as I do uh, lunchtimes around campus. And um, I like the energy of orientation week because I remember that first week I was in college and very fondly remember that first week I was in college. And I went to a much smaller institution uh, than the University of Montana. And I, I fondly remember that first week. And I know the kind of, newness and freedom of it. So absolutely. Well, there definitely are still a lot of question marks. Um, our daughter is involved in recruitment. They don't call it rush because I don't think any goldfish are, you know, <laughs> offered to new <laughs> folks signing up these days. 
it, you know, it's just gotten so easy. It's so easy on these kids. No. Um, anyway, they're, I think in the midst of figuring out what they're going to do, how much they're going to be face to face. I think I might actually write a blog post, um, about this. You have to be careful, right? Not you don't want to be throwing your, <clears throat> throwing current employers or anybody under the bus. I could just focus only on the university, but they have removed basically all the cameras that they had put in classrooms and they've just gone back to situation normal. And so um, it is challenging for folks that have to quarantine and those that, you know, come down with COVID and it's um, I don't know. We've talked about this on the show before. In fact, if Eric Langhorst is listening, I need to contact him. Because I want to do a podcast interview about the things that worked during the pandemic and the, the the lessons learned. Because my sense is, and it's obviously very limited, <clears throat> but there's a number of people who really aren't at all focused on what was learned and how we were stretched in positive ways and how we can be better now as a result of what we learned in the last year and a half. And so anyway, uh, through the eyes of, of my daughter, who is a college junior, it's um, it's unfortunate to see, I guess, that at least in the case of her university here in central Oklahoma, it, it looks like they just kind of decided COVID's over and it's not. And so there's a, a lot of yeah. impacts. So, hey, shout out to Peggy George, who's in our chat room. Shout out to Jamie Camp, who's in there, too. And so, hey, she's here live, but says she listens to us frequently offline. So we are excited to have you all. Dr. Neifer, for those who don't know... Besides, you know, the standard talk about the weather and some other random stuff at the beginning, what is it that we're here to do tonight? Uh, well, uh, the Edit Situation Room is a podcast where we take kind of the, the headlines, everything from uh, breaking news to thought pieces, uh, and we kind of shoot them through the education prison to see if we can't provide a little clarity and, and maybe some movement where it needs to, um, it needs to happen in, in, well, really all levels of education. And this week we've got a number of topics we will likely talk about. Um, I have a quick back to school article I want to share, and I thought, uh, I would like to pick Dr. Fryer's brain on some items. Uh, Microsoft, uh, Google, Apple articles, uh, uh, software pick to talk about, uh, digital citizenship, podcasting news, media literacy, security, and then, of course, we will end the, the show with our Geek of the Week. And I see Wes is back with uh, uh, two uh, again. So um, we will share some things that, that we like to share uh, uh, with our, our friends in the ed tech world. Absolutely. Well, hey, you want to start with the back to school article? Let's do it. Um, this was a surprisingly good article from Lifehacker. This is the seven best lower cost tech essentials for broke college kids. And what I liked about this article is that I generally agreed with their recommendations, right? Like I thought this was a, a pretty savvy set of recommendations. Um, but also I thought they also applied very well if you're, you know, uh, uh, providing uh, some new or upgraded tech for your kiddos. So I'll uh, kind of uh, 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 stop burying the lead and actually tell you what they're recommending. Um, there's the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5, which is a $649 Windows laptop that's actually pretty stacked out with some pretty decent statistics of fast uh, uh, AMD Ryzen chip, uh, 16 gigs of RAM, and a 256 gigabyte SSD, plus it's got that nice form factor. They say if you're familiar with either a Mac Pro or a Dell XPS. The XPS is a, a fine, uh, kind of high-end laptop from, from Dell. The IdeaPad is a pretty good alternative because you get a lot of the 
speed and form factor of those two um, at a much lower price. Uh, retails for six forty nine. Uh, their second recommendation is just an iPad. If you're looking for a tablet, you don't need to buy the Air. You don't need to buy the Pro uh, or the Mini, which is a, a, a bit more form, uh, expensive form factor as well. You might be able to get away with. In fact, I, I would argue you probably could be able to get away with just the iPad. So that's the consumer uh, level device. Um, and, and I have another recommendation for that, uh, 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 later, um, refurbished MacBook Air M1s, the new M1 chip, which we've talked about, you know, uh, probably a dozen times here on the show. And both Wes and I are using M1 chips now on a fairly, fairly regular basis. Uh, and I, I now own two devices with M1 chips in there. Uh, you can buy them refurbished for as, uh, low as 849 directly from Apple. It's a great deal to buy Apple refurbished stuff. And then you can also buy used ones for sometimes as low as $700. Um, the, uh, a used Windows laptop and their recommendation is the two to three year old Lenovo ThinkPad X1. Um, and they have a great article about how to buy from trusted sources. And, and I think Wes and I actually would make the same recommendation here. Um, the, uh, a Chromebook there, they talk about there, they're talking about the, the Lenovo Flex 5, which is not one I've personally used, but I understand has pretty solid, uh, specs behind it. And they also make some other recommendations that I don't think are as important, like a Bluetooth speaker, um, uh, uh, earbuds, wireless earbuds, et cetera. So I would just add a couple other notes to that. Uh, I, it's just a different game than it was 10 years ago. I think when you're buying hardware, not only is there very good laptops in the 500 to a thousand dollar range, including that refurbished, uh, uh, Mac M1. I think that I've had, I looked earlier uh, on the Apple refurbished store and one of the, uh, the MacBook airs was $849 for a refurbished version and buying refurbished from, from Apple is amazing. Um, I've bought probably four, maybe five, um, uh, items, uh, uh, from the refurbished store. And as it turns out, two of those five had issues. They were returned because, uh, of, of, of there was an issue with, with the, the, the hardware. They didn't spot something when they were going through their refurbished process. But as it turns out, um, when I took it back to, in both cases, an Apple store, uh, they gave me a new one for free. They said, yep, it's, it's the same warranty. Uh, they oftentimes fix the hardware so it looks brand new. And it's just a really, really uh, uh, impressive uh, 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 way to go about refurbish. But the other the thing I would also suggest is Swappa. Um, we've talked about Swappa in the past. It's a kind of a used marketplace, and I'm now... Five for five, I'm buying Swappa devices for me and my family. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier this year, but um, I did when I kind of went all the way back into the um, uh, 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 Apple architecture earlier this year. I did b- uh, buy a um, a uh, iPhone XS. So this is a what a three year old model now. It was I think it was two years old when I bought it earlier this year. And I got it for uh, uh, pretty close to a third of the price than I would have gotten brand new. And the battery is a little worse for wear, right? But I did was able to buy a higher storage model. Um, and at some point, I'll probably get the battery changed. I'll go directly to uh, 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 an Apple store to do that. That's I think that's the best way to do that as opposed to going to a third party. But that'll cost me 100 bucks, and that phone will go for a while. 
because Apple updates their software on, on older hardware. I did the same thing with an iPad earlier this year. I ended up buying a, um, an iPad Air third generation. So that's one generation back. Uh, I, it was a, a 4G model because I wanted to have a, a I have a cheap data plan um, on T-Mobile for a mobile device like that. It cost me 10 bucks a month for unlimited data. I like being able to bring an iPad when I don't want to carry anything else. I don't have to worry about Wi-Fi because it just works to, to jump on the network. And uh, it, it, it turns out this thing only had 25 battery cycles on it. So it was practically new and I got it for about half the cost than a new one would have cost. And so I think, you know, being savvy about that, it, I just feel like there's a lot more options than trusting, you know, a sketchy a seller on eBay. Um, you know, there's just a lot of great options now for that. So do you have any suggestions, Wes, on inexpensive hardware to look at? It is a little interesting for an inexpensive hardware article that we're recommending the MacBook Air, uh, but it is a great investment in terms of return on investment. And and Jamie and Peggy and I have been talking in the back in the back channel here. Yeah, it's uh, it's a phenomenal laptop. <clears throat> I like their last suggestion, which is you know iPad. Uh, what is it? Um, AirPod Pros um, are the are the flagship for noise canceling. But they're like 250 bucks, so they highlight um, for about 112 dollars, uh, you know, half price. You uh, can can pick up the Beats Studio Buds, uh, and I know she's not listening to the show, but we have a daughter whose birthday is coming up, and we had got some Amazon, you know, relatively inexpensive. I want to say probably like ballpark 35, 40 but 40 dollar uh, headphones. Um, they weren't noise canceling. But they didn't really, I don't, I don't even know if they lasted a year. Um, so I'm glad to hear that. And it is it is really important to, to be able to, I say that as I'm using my, you know, $5, you know, without the, the cover here. Anyway, yes, I need to invest in something a little bit better. But there's a whole, lots of folks, as far as all the video conferencing that people do, not just enjoying music, but being able to, um, you know, effectively communicate with with folks and the noise have you tried noise canceling anything yet have you experienced those because i haven't tried them yet yeah i have a pair of anchor um i guess over the ear headphones so the big headphones that have a noise canceling feature and anchor is a i would call it a budget premium brand the stuff is pretty good and but it's you know going to be vastly less than sony or apple and they're they're pretty great and i know the noise canceling on there is not quite what you would get on, you know, any of the Apple stuff, but it's, it's, it's pretty great. So, yeah, well, we may be able to encourage Jamie to take the, take the plunge with Swappa. My Gen 3 Apple watch, I, I picked up on Swappa. I've sold lap, uh, MacBook laptops. I've sold, uh, old, um, well, I saw, I think I sold my, our Xbox actually. Um, I've sold an old, uh, Apple router. Um, and then we've bought probably, probably at least three iPhones on it. So haven't gotten burned and it just, yep. it's, it's worked great and it's really fast too. So, uh, you, and of course you can see all the prices. Like if you're going to sell something, you know, you, you rate what your <clears throat> condition is and exactly with the model. And so you can see what things have been selling for that. Right. So you can price yourself right in the market. And, um, I just can't say enough about it. I think it's phenomenal. And the point too is, do you need brand new technology? Now I say this having an, a nice M1 Mac, but you know, school, school got that. Um, but we're thinking about college, you know, for our youngest who's a senior, I think an M1 Mac will be a great investment. <clears throat> 
we did, you know, we did uh, splurge for my wife and get her a new new uh, Apple Watch. But I mean, I am super happy with this one. Yes, it would be nice to have some of the latest features, but for a heck of a lot of us, we don't actually need the latest, the greatest. If you're just a, a couple years back, and to your point for your iPhone, Jason, that, that's great. I mean, being able to pay a third of the cost, you know, just a year or two after release, um, you know, it's superb. So. You know, if you want to throw off the, the consumerist, hey, you have to have the latest thing. I know that that vibe might not resonate with a lot of listeners who are into, you know, being the, the Apple fanboys and, and all that kind of stuff. And I love Apple stuff, too. Uh, but yeah. I just I just think that, um, you know, budget is important. And hey, this is a media literacy thing, too. Right. Obviously, the marketing folks want us to all you know, pony up our money every single time there, there's a new feature that's out there. But, you know, with Moore's Law and the processing power and speeds and all these kinds of things, uh, we see incremental changes and improvements. But, you know, we've reached a point with, I think, both laptops uh, as well as, as smartwatches and, and smartphones and a lot of things where, you know, the capabilities of a couple of years ago are pretty phenomenal. So great marketplace to take advantage of. So. Yeah, and, and a couple of quick swap of notes. I'm glad you mentioned selling on there because that was the deal I made myself with buying that used iPad was that I had to sell stuff to get that. That was the deal I made myself. And I'm selling a uh, actually a an iPad that was in excellent condition but wasn't being updated anymore. It's an iPad Mini 2, and I had two cell phones sitting around that were older but still had uh, enough value in there, and those three things together purchased my iPad Air. So I think that that's an important exchange, too. And there's good environmental reasons to do that as well. All right. Sounds good. Well, hey, let's talk a little security. Uh, we have uh, vis- we visited rather extensively last week about the T-Mobile hack. I think Friday, uh, T-Mobile came out and said 50 million customers affected. Um, I found several articles, but I'll put in this Los Angeles Times article, which is outstanding. Uh, it's titled Hackers Stole Millions of Social Security Numbers from T-Mobile. What should you do? And this is from August the 18th. So one of the things that's highlighted in this article and others is the threat of a SIM swap attack. Um, you know, we may, you and I, who knows, we may not be the, the victims of a spear phishing attack where someone is specifically going for us. Uh, like that happens to journalists and politicians and other people. <clears throat> but the stakes are pretty high. There's a citation, I think, in this article that a journalist actually had a Coinbase account that was connected to his email. And by taking <laughs> control of his SIM card, the hacker was able to get control of the, the Gmail account. So they were able to get control of the Coinbase account. And it was, you know, a cascading series of real big headaches and problems with bank accounts being accessed and all kinds of things. So uh, one of the things that I did not know about before reading these articles, you know, we talked about credit freezes and, and fraud alerts and things like that there and, and also changing the pin. Uh, so that's a really important thing to do is to, is to, um, you know, get it, get in, get in touch with T-Mobile and change your pin. Uh, but one of the things that I learned about, and I guess it wasn't in this article, it was in uh, this other one. So this is CNET, T-Mobile Data Breach and SIM Swap Scam, How to Protect Your Identity from August 22nd. T-Mobile has a free service. Now, as a result of the hack, they're allowing customers to sign up for like a year's free, you know, protection services and whatever. Um, but this service... Uh, 
um, is something that we could all, you know, have signed up for at whatever time. Uh, and it is called Account Takeover Protection Service. In fact, I'm going to drop that link directly into the chat. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this before, Jason. So this account protection, uh, you have to activate it per line, but it gives you the highest level of protection as far as your account stuff being changed. And a lot of us use two-factor authentication. I know Jason put an article in tonight we might talk about with YouTube creators. We should be using two-factor authentication, but the worst kind to use is text messaging or SMS-based authentication. So one of the things that the CNET article and some of these other recommend is that you change your two-factor authentication or your multi-factor authentication from text messaging, which kind of seems ironic because it's your cell phone, but that's not as secure, and move that to something like the Google Authenticator app. Um, I like a service called Authy. Uh, you can use your you password can. manager to create a, a, a multi-factor, you know, authentication code. And so anyway, those, there's a lot of other options. But the point is, it is insecure to use your text messaging as your authentication mechanism. Um, and there's just there's so many people affected by this. And. I was talking to my kids, you know, this week we're back to school talking about passwords. And we've, for the first time, we required all of our middle school students, grades five through eight, to go ahead and change their password. And a lot of them had never changed it from elementary school when there was a very simple formula we used because we had, you know, teachers wanted yeah. to make it, make it easy, yada, yada. So, you know, having my keys out saying, look, are you going to leave your house keys laying around? Are your parents going to lay, you know, just lay your car, the car keys around or just leave them, you know, in the car? Hopefully not. I know people that have, have gotten their cars stolen neighbors of mine, actually. Uh, but anyway, those aren't safe things to do. So uh, just a reminder, we talk about security a lot. It's a really important issue. And uh, had you heard of this account takeover protection service from T-Mobile? And is that something maybe you'd already signed up for or, Learned about um, as a result of the hack. I had not, and I will do so. Um, I, I and and obviously, I've been keeping an eye on this too because um, I've been a T-Mobile customer since. Actually, I think it might be six, five years now. 2016, I think, is when I moved over. And and to be honest, I have I've, I've never been this happy with a, a mobile company. And even when they're slightly annoying. Um, uh, it's never as annoying as my experience with, uh, other providers is what I will say. I won't even mention their name, right? Other providers. But the question I have for you, uh, Wes, we back channeled about this over the weekend. So, um, you had received a text message saying that your account information was compromised. Was that before you'd contacted them or after you'd contacted them? I think it was right after I had contacted them. Uh, we had another weird issue, which turned out to be my wife, my son wasn't able to receive text messages from her. And when you send a text message, like it could actually be going to an email address or the phone number or iMessage. And anyway, they got that resolved. But like I asked for a callback, it took like three hours for them to call me back. And I talked to him about that. Then I also said, oh, and on the hack issue, and we changed the pin over the phone. And then I received the text message. So I don't know if it was related to that. There's some other articles out there where people are complaining about the poor communication that T-Mobile, you know, did uh, through this and, and still has done. But yeah, I um, received a message where they assured me, I, they assured me that my social was not compromised and no financial information. 
but uh, this might be the first time I've heard of the IMEI number, which is the specific number oh, of yeah. your phone yep. being compromised. And so anyway, with some of this, it's driver's license, birthday, social security. And then one of the other things that they're saying in these articles, besides changing your PIN and considering changing your, your two-factor away from SMS or text messaging to another method, is also changing your security questions. And that's something else just to, to keep in mind, because a lot of us probably, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to do, you know, I'm doing my dog's name for my security question or whatever. Again, once it's been hacked, it's out there. Uh, there's this vast trove of information that, that hackers have about us. And so they all line up together with your phone number, probably, and your email address. So um, that's something else that they recommend is is changing that. So yeah. um, I still need to take some more action on this. I know you were, were quick to take some action. So, hey, that's a very practical way that the EdTech Situation Room may help help you in your life, right? I mean, if, <laughs> if, if any of us can help our families, ourselves, avoid identity theft, protect ourselves in this, you know, increasingly digitized world, then, hey, yay, victory for the EdTech Situation Room. You're getting your money's worth, which is free. So anyway, you're getting yeah. more than your money's worth as a result <laughs> of the show. Yeah, and we're not even advertising, so we're not even taking your data either. So That's right. Um, and, and the other thing I would also say, too, is that uh, – uh, uh, to borrow a, a phrase from Wes, it's a sign of the times, right? And that this is a particularly large one and a particularly terrible one. But, I mean, I've had to deal with minor ones of these, you know, a dozen times over in the last five years. And although it's a big bummer, you know, I think being, uh, uh, you can definitely take steps to be safe. That, that, that we don't want to diminish that, but it's going to happen even if you're being ultra careful, uh, because it's not all up to you. It's up to a lot of other actors working together to create a safe environment. But I would also say too is that, um, uh, you know, invest the time to make sure you're safe after it happens as well. Yep. And password manager, you know, that came out yeah. before we, we, it's like the dead horse that we beat, but use your password manager and change your, you know, duplicated and compromised passwords. So end of rant, where should we go next, sir? Well, uh, let's talk about some, maybe uh, some more traditional uh, tech stuff here. Um, I am, uh, well, let's go through the, the kind of Microsoft, Google, Apple articles. So a couple of Microsoft things to share today. First and foremost, we've mentioned a couple of times that Windows 11 is coming uh, at the end of 2021. And it's still not entirely clear to me. I think you can. Uh, there's an upgrade path from 10 to 11. I think you get offered that later this year, just like new versions of Windows 10. And I think it'll come on new PCs starting January-ish. But if you're curious about it, and especially I would guess that IT people might be interested in this, uh, to start an experiment whether or not you want to move to Windows 11, you know, sooner or later. But you can download uh, a an ISO, so that's a, basically a, a CD-ROM image, although most people put them onto to USB devices now. But you can download a, an ISO now from Microsoft and install it from fresh. And there's a great article from PC Gamer on August 20th. If you're not familiar on how to do that. Um, it'll walk you through the steps to take. And, and, and to be clear, don't do this on a production laptop, right? Uh, do this on a, a you know, a, a workbench laptop or a spare one you have sitting around. But if you're interested in Windows 11, and to be honest, I don't need the distraction right now. It's, it's, a, it's a busy time for me at work, so I won't be engaging uh, in that quite yet. But I will once work lets up. But you can download an ISO and install that. 
that link uh, will be will be in the show notes if you're interested. But the other one I think is a little more interesting is Geeky Gadgets reported on August 20th that Windows 11 has an interesting feature right now in 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 these early betas that makes it difficult to change the default browser. And it's a little more subtle than they just make it difficult. Uh, and, and let me let me kind of explain what I mean. Right now, if you download Chrome uh, to Windows 10, right, uh, one of the things it will ask you once you install Chrome is if you want to make it your default browser. And it takes you to a pretty easy-to-use dialog screen that has you change it from Microsoft Edge, which is the integrated browser in Windows 10, um, to Chrome, right? You change it and it's done. Um, it will ask you that a couple of times when you load Chrome, right? Because Chrome triggers that. Well, in Windows 11, it, it will ask you once. And if you say, if you ignore it or dismiss the notification, it won't ask you that again. But it's not a one click to move it to another browser like Chrome or Firefox. You actually have to go in and associate all of the things that a browser opens, including PDFs and um, uh, 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 HTML is an example of something. You have to associate it with individual file extensions, which in my humble opinion is an absolute mess, right? And it kind of harkens back to when Microsoft first started bundling Internet Explorer and there weren't a lot of market alternatives and Microsoft was was kind of putting barriers in your way to utilize a third-party browser, they got the snot suit out of them for antitrust stuff and they, they had to pay a lot of money and kind of unbundle the browser even though they included a browser, they had to make it easy to switch. And so... I wonder if this is a, you know, a harbinger of things to come. My guess is, is that Microsoft um, uh, will, will step back on this because this seems like an easy target for people um, to, you know, to, to, to freak out, right, when, when Windows 11 becomes a reality. And to be honest, like, I'm pretty tech savvy. I'm also kind of lazy, right? Like, not that I would want to use Edge as my primary browser, although I will say I do use the new version of Edge, the Chrome-based version of Edge, way more than I use old Edge. In fact, I've got it installed on all my Macs. That's how much I'm I'm I'm, I'm using it. I like it. I think it's a decent browser, but I do think um, uh, uh, it's a bad call on the part of, of Microsoft to do that. They should make it just a one-click. And I was just going to check this for sure, what these numbers look like, but. Um, you know, the uh, Chrome is still absolutely dominant um, from a, a browser platform uh, standpoint. Um, uh, second place actually is, oh, wow. Uh, uh, second place is actually Safari, which I guess I'm not surprised about just because a lot of Mac users are very dedicated to Safari. I don't care for it personally. And Edge is, uh, as of right now, um, in a, a solid uh, fourth place behind Firefox. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, an interesting phenomenon for sure. But, you know, I think Microsoft just needs to focus on being a better browser than it does, you know, playing kind of trickery on, on keeping you integrated there. So I immediately thought of <laughs> uh, friends don't let friends use Internet Explorer. And that we've seen this movie before in terms of Microsoft trying to make it hard to change browsers. I actually Googled, um, friends don't let friends use IE. 
I am the second hit. That's really cool. I haven't <laughs> seen that in a while. ZDNet is the first hit from March 4th, 2011. And from March 6th, 2011, it's Speed of Creativity. Friends, don't let friends use Internet Explorer ever. <laughs> so, yeah, this is sad to see. I don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, just when you think Microsoft's, it's, uh, it's the more progressive, uh, you, you know, use multiple platforms company than they're doing something like this. Um, and the other thing ahead. I would note too for Microsoft, like New Edge is pretty good, right? Like I like it. I think it's a very solid browser. It's not just because it's built on Chrome. I think they're building smart things on top of the Chromium open source browser, right? And I think they should focus their efforts there because I think that's a an infinitely uh, infinitely better use of their time. And then there's a little t- uh, back channel discussion back to the T-Mobile takeover protection, uh, whether, whether that's available for everybody. Um, it says, although this is a free feature, your line must be registered as the primary account holder to add this uh, if you have a T-Mobile postpaid account. Most of us are probably in a postpaid account status where, I mean, we, we have a contract and technically I think we pay in advance of the next month for the, you know, data and the, and the phone calls and things like that that we do. I don't know. We'll check into that a little bit more, but it, I think that I think that's something that we can sign up for. And uh, Jamie and Peggy are definitely agreeing that associating all of your extensions with the new browser is a freaking nightmare. Surely there's going to be some folks that are going to respond to that. And there's going to be some kind of an app or something. If if Microsoft persists with that, that just seems like a a clumsy, clumsy thing for them. Yeah, clumsy actually is a a perfect way of putting it. Yeah, right. All right. Well, anything else on the Microsoft front or does that kind of cover Microsoft? Yeah, let me give it one other article. It's actually a follow-up from a couple weeks ago. Um, this is reported in several sources, and the other one that uh, um, that uh, was our original source on this was Kevin Tolfel and his uh, really uh, excellent About Chromebooks blog. But uh, it appears that, uh, and this is very applicable to schools, that Microsoft is just abandoning its uh, Android app strategy on Chrome OS. And instead... They're going to eventually, this is official now, in September, they're going to stop allowing you to install uh, Android, uh, uh, the Android Microsoft Office apps. This is both the bundled single app and the individual Excel Word PowerPoint app um, on Chrome OS. And they're, they're, they're nudging you aggressively to the web-based version. And I would say that I think this is also a mistake, right? Like, um, from the standpoint of the... Android apps were really nice looking and they were starting to become, they weren't, they, they, there wasn't feature parity because there's a lot of stuff that, you know, full blown office apps on Mac or PC are, are just going to always uh, uh, be a couple steps ahead. You may never use those features, but the full fledgers were, were getting close, but you know, the mobile app on an iPad looks great. And the mobile app on a Chromebook looked really great. It looked pretty close to a uh, desktop based office, but while I think that is unfortunate, and if you and your district had kind of gone all in on the, you know, you were using Chromebooks as a platform, but you're a micro, essentially a Microsoft district, and we're using those apps as, um, uh, uh, as as kind of desktop style apps, that's not going to be an option uh, in, in in you know after the next you know uh, sixty days or so. The other thing I would say, though, is that I still think that the web-based version is a better experience on the Chromebook than the apps were. It was close, right, especially with the most recent apps, but I really like the web-based version of Office 365 apps. 
So, um, so yeah, something to know if you happen to be an IT person. And if you're not running, yeah, if you're, it's interesting. My, my intersection here is just Minecraft. That's it. I've been resetting Microsoft 365 passwords for students because we've been getting kids on to Minecraft, but so far that has not pulled, pulled me or, or our school further into the, the Microsoft, uh, circle, but yeah, it's, um. It, it, it is interesting to see where this is going to go. And I got to say, yeah. man, just uh, about a week into school, Chromebooks are great. It is so nice to have everybody. We're using the Dell, what, 3120 yep. uh, Chromebooks. Uh, and it is it is fantastic. But passwords and all that kind of stuff can be a little bit challenging. We don't have a synchronization going between Google and Microsoft. And so you got separate passwords and set those up and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's going to, going to be interesting to see where this continues to go because from the educational standpoint, I think Google absolutely has it right with the way that Chrome works and, you know, the, the management and, and just, you know, comparing that to other platforms. So anyway, small unpaid advertisement for the, for, for Chrome OS. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't planned. So, <laughs> all right, where'd you next, sir? Well, let's do the Google articles. We've both got a couple of interesting ones here. Um, and I imagine this first one's going to have some conversation nine to five Google reports on August 24th. YouTube is forcing creators, uh, so that would be people uploading stuff onto YouTube, to use two-factor authentication on Google accounts starting this year. And basically because of, you know, the, the especially if you're a popular creator, that the, uh, you know, you and you have a lot of followers, I would imagine it's quite a... Um, an attractive uh, uh, target uh, when you have follower, you know, people with 50,000, 100,000, million, 5 million followers, um, they're going to um, uh, tell people you got to have a, a two-factor turn on to access YouTube Studio, which is the kind of software backend for creators. And um, I, I think it's a good idea, right? I think the more an account has, you know, kind of access to the world, right, you have to have more security. So the headline makes it sounds like it is everybody. You have to be signed up for their their paid program for that to affect you. Oh, so you can oh, oh. you can still upload if you're not um, if you're not making money. Uh, it'll kick in November second. Got it. Uh, so it's called the YouTube Partner Program. So if you're not in YouTube Partner, um, then you don't have to. But yeah, November first. This is a best practice. Yeah. Whether you're in YouTube Partner or not, yes. Sign up for multi-factor. I think it was in 2017, <clears throat> we started the process uh, when I was director of technology of requiring all of our faculty and staff to enable two-factor authentication. And I th believe that was a really good decision then. And if your district is not doing that now for faculty and staff, you know, I think you need to. Is it a pain? Yes, <laughs> it can be. But it's something that you can adjust to. Um, one of the things I use the most now at school is just the, the tap on a, on a Google app. You know, you can just open up Gmail if you're logging into another device like a Chromebook. But yeah, I think this is, it's a sign of the times, you know, um, it's interesting when we talk about forced, right? There's different things people are, you know, anyway, it's all kinds of things now going around with vi with vaccines and stuff like that that we're talking about. But this is something that, um, you know, you want to do to protect yourself. So November yep. 1st, if you are, over a thousand subscribers and you've had the X number of views in the past three months or whatever, you know, you got to maintain those things to uh, continue to be a part of YouTube's 
paid uh, paid program. Yep. Uh, Nine to five Google also reports. This is just a quick one. Uh, Google Meets will now warn you when your device is causing the echo. Which, if you've ever been in a large meeting, especially if uh, you know a, a few, some, or many of the folks on that meeting are a uh, not super tech savvy and may not understand that they're causing an echo or an issue. They've built in some uh, some sensitivity to that and will warn you if you're the problem. And as a, 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 a an individual that spends quite a few uh, minutes uh, a week in video conferencing now, hallelujah. Thank you, uh, uh, Google Meets, for adding that feature. And then one other quick stat to share, 9to5Google, which apparently I read a lot of, uh, also reporting uh, the YouTube monetization program. So the, uh, uh, as we were talking about before, 2 million creators now uh, getting monetized. Uh, I would imagine that, you know, uh, the vast majority of them are getting small amounts of monetization. And then when you start getting larger followers, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, that's a lot more money. Um, but in the last three years have paid over 30 billion dollars so that's one platform right and there are influencers and creators across several platforms that that make money um but uh yeah i you know youtube is not a joke and while um you know uh i i sometimes chuckle at little kids that say i'm gonna become a youtube star that's kind of akin to saying i'm gonna become an nba star right like the chance of that happening is relatively low right but let's make no bones about it. $30 billion in uh, paid money to creators means that, you know, it's a $10 billion business a year and that's nothing to cop at. Okay. I had, you're making me drop, uh, drop another link in. I was almost going to do this as a geek of the week, but I watched this video this week from Verata Siem, uh, who's a phenomenal YouTuber. It's it's about a 20-minute video. It's called Clickbait is Unreasonably Effective. This is one of the best media literacy videos about YouTube that I've seen. It's incredible the difference that a thumbnail makes. And he kind of calls it Clickbait 1, Clickbait 2. Like, authentic clickbait is oh, – I forget how he says it. But basically, if it's bad clickbait, it's, like, misleading and it's manipulative and it's not, you know, honest. But if you're, if you just have an engaging thumbnail that is more eye catching and attention grabbing and is really pointing people to, to, to what, um, you know, your video is about, I mean, he is getting millions and millions of, of more views and it's actually making me think. I, I, <laughs> sorry, I clicked on it. Yes, you can. Um, I believe, okay, so I need to redo an update playing with media, right? I published that in, I think, 2011. Um, I think that as teachers, it is extremely valuable for us to be playing with different kinds of media. I think each of us should at least have a personal YouTube channel. Um, well, I mean, at least a professional one that we have for school to be able to share, you know, content that relates to lessons and things that we're doing. There's just so much to learn about literacy and communication. And I mean, you are 100 percent right. YouTube is not a joke. YouTube is legit. Thirty billion dollars in the last three years. Um, anyway, it's there's so many reasons why video is so important. YouTube is so important. So I just, I'll, I'll shout that out. That's not my, my geek of the week, but put that on your watch list, which by the way, wait, what, what, uh, watch later, right? Everybody has a watch later list, uh, as a YouTube user, as a Google user, add that Veracium 
clickbait is unreasonably effective video to your watch list. And I'm going to consider actually sharing it maybe with my sixth graders, uh, just because it is, it, it brings together so many different things about the attention economy, about the way YouTube and social media want to draw us in and bring us to the rabbit hole and keep us, you know, watching and a lot of different topics that yeah. are worth understanding and discussing. Well, and I've joked about in the past that, and it's only kind of a joke because once in a while we'll do these kind of a tongue in cheek in my day job, but, um, uh, <laughs> I'm just reading the comments on this video. They're pretty funny too. But, you know, we used to talk about, you know, how could you refashion, and I'm a history teacher by training, right? Uh, uh, you know, clickbait content, right? Like, how could you refashion Leonardo da Vinci learned to paint? You'll never, you'll never believe what happened next. Or, um, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Harry Truman won World War II with one weird trick or, Something along those lines, right? But um, the, the comment I was just laughing at, laughing out loud at, at this video was, clickbait is unreasonably effective. This video is proof. So, um, <laughs> like, the guy, you know, effectively has, you know, 3.6 uh, million views in in uh, effectively one week. So, there that is. So. so, so Peggy's asking, yeah, she thought of clickbait as a bad thing. Yes, and what... Um... And I should Derek Mueller is his name who has Veronicium. What Derek says is that there's there there can be considered kind of two types of clickbait, and certainly the misleading, disingenuous, dishonest, manipulative. There's there's bad clickbait, but he if this is A B testing that happens a lot online yeah. with social media, right? Because the same survey you know could be shared with these keywords or whatever, and it performs really differently. Politics, this is so huge, right? Every single political campaign today is, who's going to have a chance is going to be engaging and, and hiring consultants that are going to help with social media and that are going to you know, use A-B testing to find out what are the best ways to reach con different constituencies. So anyway, yeah, the clickbait is generally a bad thing. Um, but, but yeah, watch Derek's video, uh, and let me know what you think. Cause I, it just, it really is an eye opener and it's got me thinking as it, as it, he's telling the story of how it did for him, just realizing how much, like you should spend as much time. I think Mr. Beast actually is who he interviews. Who's like the number one YouTuber in the world. I think that's who that is. I'll share, share my YouTube, YouTube illiteracy by not knowing that, <clears throat> but he, they're saying you should spend as much time on the thumbnail of the YouTube video as you do, you know, with other kinds of editing things. It's just so important. And there's something we're not teaching in class, right? Come on, kids. We all got to design our video thumbnail well. Hey, this is, this is a big deal. And depending upon where you work and where you, where you're going to work, you know, that, that could be a huge part of your job because it, just makes such a big difference for yeah. the levels of engagement. So well, and and the other thing to know too is that there are some. Uh, there's a lot of subtle clickbait in a shocking number of uh, mainstream news sources. Oh my and, gosh! And, yes. and I'll give you a, a, an example of this. If you go to uh, a lot of like uh, local newspapers, right? I'm not talking about like like tiny newspapers. I'm talking about you know like legitimate. Um, uh, you know, legitimate media sources, but, you know, ones that are looking to increase their clicks and have advertising on. There's a service called Outbrain, which drives me crazy. Uh, it is a bunch of stuff that is 
for lack of a better way of putting it, real clickbait stuff, but it's tricks like, um, you know, kind of low, low value content. It's oftentimes celebrity based and it'll have headlines like, you won't believe who got divorced. And then they'll have a picture of two people that aren't divorced, right? That, that are celebrities, right? Or, and, and then you click on it and then it's like a 70 page slideshow. Right. And, and each, each page has 10 ads on it. Right. So they're getting click, either clicks or ads and ads. And they trick you into clicking on those ads sometimes by the next button. Right. And it's like, well, I just wanted to find out, you know, why did Bono divorce? Right. And, you know, and it's stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about media literacy here. It's, uh, and, and I, I don't think it's, it's outside the bounds of, of helping kids be more tech savvy to look at this stuff and say, like, I understand why people click on this stuff because criminy, I've clicked on this stuff, right? And I know better than that. But, you know, I think it's important to talk about. And I think there's an ethical question there too. Like, I don't like it when legitimate news sources are feeding me that outbrain stuff, right? Because it's not news. And even if they get some benefit out of it, like, you know, money, um, or maybe some of their articles end up getting fed into that system. It's pretty ugly. And you need to be wary of your own content too. I think you talked a couple of weeks ago on the show about, or I don't know, maybe I had the link. It was a video site which had gone defunct and somebody had bought it and it was, you know, directing people to pretty, pretty shocking uh, videos. You know, sometimes when you embed things and um, ads and whatnot, you can end up, you know, you can end up with content that, you know, you, you want to be aware of. So I agree. Ad blockers sometimes can take care of that. But again, what are your students looking at versus what are you looking at? If yeah. you're using uBlock Origin and seeing a mostly ad blocked web experience, that could be extremely different to what your students and others are experiencing. So... All right. Hey, I'd love to hear the Joe Rogan article on podcasting. Would you mind picking yeah. that one up? Because we we got about ten minutes left, I think. Uh, yeah. So this one's this is really interesting, and and uh, this is from um, I almost said the wrong source. This is from the Verge uh, today, right? Yeah, today's Verge. Joe Rogan, um, uh, who has moved to the Spotify platform, right? And it's an exclusive to Spotify. So in other words, if you want to listen to Joe Rogan, um, you have to use the Spotify. Uh, app to do that. It's free. You're not paying for that, but it's exclusively on Spotify. And Joe Rogan was doing just fine uh, uh, financially with his very popular podcast uh, before he moved to Spotify. But um, uh, The Verge has it did some deep analysis and, you know, Spotify doesn't release its listening numbers. So we have no idea what those numbers look like. So they instead did a number of kind of analyses to basically discover that Joe Rogan as a plat or as I'm sorry, as a, a podcast content creator is losing influence. And so here are the kind of things that, um, uh, 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 here are the kind of things they're measuring in order to determine that headline. Like the words were there somewhere. Um, as an example, uh, um, Joe Rogan guess, right? Uh, before he went to Spotify, or before he went to Spotify, they would gain, you know, somewhere between, uh, two and just over 7,000 followers on Twitter when they went on the Joe Rogan podcast, right? Then he moved to, to Spotify. 
that started trending downward to under 2,000. And since he went exclusive on Spotify, that number has been consistently below, at or below 3,000, um, including, in one case, well less than 1,000. So the average was much higher before he did that. That's one piece of analysis that they used. Um, uh, uh, and then um, average Twitter followers gained... Um, by repeat guests, right? And they looked at, at, uh, four different uh, individuals on there. Um, all four of those, uh, had less Twitter followers, uh, uh, added after appearances on Mr. Rogan's show after he went Spotify exclusive. And then they looked at searches on Google for Joe Rogan that also went, uh, statistically lower after he went Spotify exclusive. And uh, they also did it in terms of his YouTube channel. He was gaining uh, somewhere between 200,000 and 350,000 uh, additional YouTube uh, subscribers. And that started decreasing after he joined the Spotify family and then has been down to just 100,000 more a month. And so, you know, it's... It, it's not quite a, you know, oh, so sad because the world's leaving behind is still getting, uh, you know, 100,000 more followers on YouTube a month, which I imagine creates quite a, quite a bit of income for him. He will most certainly have to have a two-factor authentication uh, 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 on his YouTube channel, I imagine. But the bottom line is, is that having to force people to go into a special app, right, to, to decrease it, it kind of gets rid of the universality of, of podcasting. And... Um, I have a very specific example of this that uh, I think that that podcasts, both commercially produced and little kind of mom and pop cat podcasts like the Hit Situation Room, um, they are untapped content resources. Uh, I think that uh, there are, well, I probably listen to at least 25 podcast titles in any given month that I think would be extraordinary in a typical social studies classroom, which is where my content area came from. There's just such great content. And there's a lot of research to suggest that the narrative podcast style is actually extremely engaging to listeners and I think would also be too, to, to students, right? Um, but you can't use it in a classroom if you have to force kids to go download a specific app to do it or create an account on Spotify. It's so much better if they can just download one of the great free podcast catchers and just go search in a directory so it's universally available. So, um, yeah, I Spotify is awesome, right? It's really changed my nature with music, and I'll never forget you know, for a complete side note, when I first showed my dad Spotify, a guy who just loves music and and has, you know, uh, 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 well, now 75 years of of uh, memories related to music. Um, and he uh, you know, he spent like four days listening to it straight because it was just so amazing to find every song ever that he could listen to. Wow. But the, the, the podcast there just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I still use a third-party app, and I always will. Pocket Cast, for me, will always be that app. So any thoughts, Dr. Frey? Well, number one, what a great article to use with students to talk about graphs, uh, yeah. and to talk about data. One of our high school math teachers, actually, is – that's like her um, – we all have kind of stretch goals for our instruction, and that's one of hers. And I'm going to share this with her because uh, this is exactly the kind of thing she wants to bring into the classroom for analysis and discussion, and, and it's just so relevant. Uh, we were having a little back channel discussion with, with Jamie and Peggy uh, talking about this and how, you know – 
podcast going exclusive. It just it goes against the grain of the whole ethic of what podcasting has been for a long time. It is the the corporatization, the the profiteering, you know, side of of a podcast. Um, I think that I mean, as we meant we talked about on the show before, you know, we put ours out there. It's linked on on Amazon S three and. Uh, the feed is out there. And so that feed can be grabbed by a variety of different uh, pod catchers. But I think that is absolutely fascinating. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how Joe responds. Something I think I put this article in months ago when he moved to Spotify, they actually censored some of his content. There yeah. were a couple episodes that were, I think they had to do with UFOs and extraterrestrials, maybe some other things too. But anyway, they said, you can't bring those, those have to be deleted. And so that content was actually deleted from his feed because he had to move all of his content, you know, over into the Spotify feed. So um yeah, podcasting. Hey, obviously we love podcasts. We do a free podcast here basically every week. Um, it's just, it's so tremendously amazing to get, I mean, yes, it's overwhelming to live today in the 21st century, but being able to filter your feeds, curate the voices that you trust and you want to hear from, and then being able to listen to them free and get them also where there's really not any rules about time length. You know, I listen to shows that are you know, five or 10 minutes long, some that are religiously 30 minutes, uh, some that, you know, well, I don't listen to twit at two and a half hours that often for the whole thing, but you know, it just, the free form factor is, is just fantastic. So I actually need to, for my wife, um, she's wanting to, to use some more podcasts in her, her classroom. And I would like to probably for my oral history project that I do with sixth grade, have my kids do some more listening. So if Jamie or Peggy, I need to just do some Googling for this, but if you've got some recommendations about kid friendly, you know, podcast archives or, or places for just like Jason's saying, it's such a rich trove of content. Anyway, that's just a personal instructional thing that I need to do that kind of relates to podcasting. So thank you for picking up that article, Dr. Neifer. I think we are approaching the top of the hour, although I don't want to step into the host's, you know, chair because that is, <laughs> that is your role. So go, go ahead and take, turn, take it where you want to take it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do that. We're from in at the top of the hour. Let's do our geeks of the week. What do you have to share this week, sir? Okay, I'm going to I'd like to actually try this. I haven't done this before. My my quick one is that The Social Dilemma, which is the documentary by um, the Center for Humane Technology. And then I mentioned him last week, uh, Robert McNamee, who wrote the book Zucked. Uh, they're they're two of the prime, you know, prime movers behind it. Uh, it's free on Netflix until September the 30th. So it is t talking about exclusivity. Uh, it's been exclusive on Netflix. And if you weren't a Netflix subscriber, you couldn't watch it. Well, guess what? Now it's free on YouTube. So uh, share that, you know, far and wide. I really do think we need to continue to push for movement forward on the privacy front. And yes, this is the tech correction and we raise the issue of regulation, but I definitely think um, that we need to move that ball forward. So that's my quick one. My longer one, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. Renee Hobbs, who is the guru of media literacy, shared this video. This is hilarious. And it, it speaks to so many different things that we talk about on the show. So I haven't actually tried this. Um, so yeah, let's just see how this works. I'm going to try to share my screen. I'm going to click the link. This is a video called Section 230 Song. And let's see if... Can you hear that, Jason? No. Hang on. Okay. Let me... 
Wes is going to, okay, I'm going to turn on my system audio. I don't know if this is going to work or not. Can you hear it? Yes. When there was no one on the internet, we had no iPhone beams were not invented yet. Congress made it for law to help it blossom and grow. So now I can't get sued for what my users say. It's why I own two spaceships in most of L.A. All from winding you up and then watching you go. I just want to engage you with things to enrage you to keep your eyes on your screen. I don't ever get dirty because Section 230 is keeping my hands so clean. Here's the good news, everybody has a voice. Here's the bad news, everybody has a voice. I'm going to pause. You uh, you got 48 seconds of it. Were you able to hear that? Yes. Yeah. Sound okay. Great. Okay. Uh, let me stop sharing my screen because we're all going to go crazy here. Okay. Yeah. That is hilarious. Watch the whole thing. It just brings together so many different things. We talk about Section 230 that provides liability protection for the platforms. And it allows, you know, Facebook to say things like, oh, I'm so sorry you had the New Zealand shooter that live streamed we're sorry, we'll do better next time. And there's no consequence or repercussion. So anyway, that is probably almost certainly pretty above most of my kids' heads. And I don't know, I may, I may not show that in class, but if you're teaching high school, if you're teaching college or you yourself just want to see a very witty and poignant, if I can use that word, uh, musical and animated summary of the issues surrounding the attention economy, section 230 regulation, the kinds of issues raised by the social dilemma. That's your video. And that unfortunately is probably my longest geek of the week ever. I apologize. <laughs> Quite all right. I, I will bounce it out with a quick one. Um, speaking of media literacy of uh, one of my favorite resources for, for really thoughtful Media literacy content is common sense education and the commonsense.org is an outstanding website. Their education site is even that much better. And, um, uh, uh, I have a kind of Twitter conference fr- friend that works at common sense named Sue thoughts, who is great. I would follow her on Twitter. She shares great content, but if you're looking for good digital citizenship, um, uh, content for kiddos and, and, and an organization that really gets it right, that, that we need to be, thoughtful about implementing these extremely, extremely powerful tools in our classrooms, commonsense.org slash education. That's the place to go. Awesome. Well, Peggy, said, Peggy said in the chat that uh, the social dilemma is available on DVD and she bought it. So oh, there, there you go. go. There's a Peggy George uh, geek of the week. Find me on westfriar.com. Uh, click the connect link. Uh, let's talk barbecue. Yeah, we can do that later. <laughs> and um, you can find me uh, uh, mostly on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, or my website, www.nifer.com. Let's talk pizza, because that's what I'm into. So, But this isn't about pizza and barbecue. Sometimes it is, but this is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC, if you happen to be on the other side of the world. But you don't have to visit us live. We wish you would, because our chat room each week features our chat moderator, Peggy. And tonight, uh, Jamie joined us for a, a lively conversation in the chat room. If you can't join us live, though, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, EdTechSR. You can find us on Facebook Broadcasting Live. 
Or you can also go to any podcast app. Everyone I try now, probably, no, including uh, Spotify for that matter. We're in their podcast directory. You can find us by just searching for EdTechSR. You can also go to our website, www.edtechsr.com, download tiny MP3s, see all the links we talk about, and view the show notes. Uh, we hope you join us live, but if not, please download. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Stay safe, stay savvy. We hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.